we're going to still take a break from uh, being learning to live a separated life. In some ways, this helps us to do it. First um, Corinthians chapter two, Paul writes. Now, Paul was a highly educated, highly educated man. He was studied under uh, uh, the Rabbi Gamaliel, who was like going to Harvard Divinity School or Yale Divinity School in terms of prestige uh, in the world. Uh, also, extremely articulate. So when we read these words, understand this is not this is not some country bumpkin, not that there's anything wrong with that, but some, not somebody who really struggled with their vocabulary and didn't know how to express themselves. I mean, God used this man to write two-thirds of the New Testament, and some of his writing, the Apostle Peter said, I have trouble understanding it. So if you have trouble understanding some of Paul's writings, you're not alone. The Apostle Peter had some difficulty with it also. Um, but he writes these words to the church at Corinth. This is in 1 Corinthians 2. He says... Um, First of all, verse 2, I I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. In other words, He wasn't coming with so much confidence in Himself. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. Persuasive words of human wisdom. Some translations will use the word, leave out the word human. But in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power in the demonstration of the spirit and of power and my question for all of us tonight is where is that where is that some of us have been walking with the Lord for over 30 years we've been saved for almost 35 years And, 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 and I've seen miracles I've seen things but I don't think I've yet seen what Paul's talking about yet and my question is, where's the power? Jesus said in, in Acts chapter 1 to the disciples that you will wait here in Jerusalem until you receive what from on high? Power from on high. And then you shall be witnesses of me. And the church is out there, I believe, trying to be witnesses for him without the power. And the only people we're fooling are ourselves. Because the world looks at the church and says, why in this, in this world we live in? Why, why should I become one of you? And there's two main reasons that the Bible gives us that we are to be witnesses of. One is the love of Christ, the love of God. And the church fails miserably in that. The perception the world has of us is that we hate certain things. And therefore, we hate the people that do those things. God doesn't hate them. He hates sin but he died for those people that do those things. But the church has forgotten that distinction. I think it's sometimes because we feel threatened by what's going on in the world, so somehow we feel that if we're angry at it, we're fighting back. No, we're playing into the devil's hands. But the second way that I believe the Bible teaches us that we are to be effective witnesses is by demonstration of the power of the Spirit. Now, that's true in a church in general, but my question is, we're not too likely to have it in the church in general if it's not in our lives. So the question I want to ask for tonight, which is kind of the follow-up to what we talked last about last week, is where is that power in our lives? So many Christians, and I'm sure there are many of us in this room right now, that are in bondage to things. Whether it's drugs or depression or whatever it may be, it could be a particular sin, it could be just whatever it is, or sickness and disease, there's things that are holding us down, holding us back, defeating us. And, and, and yet my Bible tells me that we have the power of God. We've been given the power of God. And what we began to look at last week or looked at last week is that power is given to us in one form in the Word of God. This Bible is filled with promises of God that if you'll just come and ask me, what I want to do. And we started out last week by looking at one of them, which was in Ephesians, which is Philippians 4, verse 6, where, where Paul writes, be anxious for nothing. Well, if the church just got a hold of that, we'd be a witness. We live in a world that is far more anxious today and with good reason. I mean, you know, there's stories every day of somebody getting shot somewhere in some public place where, and to the point that we almost take it for granted. 
And these things that are terrible things, which, you know, that accumulate in our mind and we get, it builds fear up in this. Then, you know, you get the uncertainty of the, all kinds of uncertainty around us because the things that have, we have built our security in are not founded on anything that's secure. If your security in your, is in your 401k, you better read your Bible and find out a stronger security. It's fine to have one. But that better not be what you put your trust in. If you put your trust in anything this world has to offer, my Bible tells me there's a day coming when everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that only those things that are eternal will remain. So that be better be where you're building the foundation of your life. The Bible's filled with promises of God saying, and here in the prayer meeting last night, we read off some of them. Come and ask me. Jesus gave the church one of the most powerful weapons we could have. In John 14, 15, and 16, he gave us his name. The same authority by which he raised the dead, by which he walked on water, by which he spoke to storms, by which he delivered multitudes. You know, we sometimes have the impression, if you haven't read your Bible looking through the Gospels, that, well, Jesus healed a few people. That's kind of what I grew up thinking. You read your Bible, and there are a whole series of, of incidents where he healed, lar- healed large multitudes. In Matthew chapter 4, the end of that chapter says that he healed he, went into the, he was going about in Galilee healing every kind of sickness and every manner of disease. In other words, wherever he went, he healed everybody. So much so, it says that the next verse, that when the news about it got up into Syria, which was north of Israel, they brought the sick down to him and he healed all of them. When was the last time you saw that happening? It's nice when we get incidents of somebody getting healed and especially if you're the one that gets healed. But the church ought to be a demonstration of the power of God, which is the reality of God and the, and the, and the ability of God to deliver, that Jesus walked in that. His witness to the world was not just that he loved people, but also he delivered people from what was bondage to them, what was hurting them. He set the captives free. And he gave that assignment to the church. And through theology, we've watered it down to the place where we have a wonderful excuse for not doing that because it passed away. But I can't find that in my Bible. I can't find that in my Bible. So I want to follow up on last week a little bit by talking about the power of God in our lives. And the main avenue for that power is what we talked about last week, is the Word of God. We talked about last week why this Word... Paul tells us, and it's not just there, it's in a number of other places we looked at, where he says, look, be anxious for nothing. That means whatever issues of life that are coming against you that would cause you to be anxious, the Word of God tells us how to handle it. Don't be anxious about it. It doesn't just say certain types of problems. It says, be anxious for nothing. Amen. That means in the Greek, no thing. <laughs> nothing. And see, we read that, and very subtly in our mind, I think we say, well, it can't mean nothing. It says nothing. If you start watering those things down, then what else would you water down? For God so loved the world, you water that down. And that's the problem. We've got to take God at His word. Well, if, if, if that was just the theory, and nobody ever did it, and it never worked, then we could say, well, it's just like anything else. But I can tell you person after person, and I read after, that have gone on before us, that have taken this word, applied it in their life, and it's worked for them. And I told you the story last week, I think it was, of George Mueller. I've been reading after him. I've read several of biographies of him, including an autobiography. Incredible story. It's funny because our grandkids were over last weekend, not this weekend, but weekend before, and one of them left the VeggieTale so my wife says, she's like, you know, this is cute. Let's watch it the other night. So we just plugged VeggieTales. Now, don't tell anybody your pastor was watching VeggieTales. <laughs> but it's probably better than a lot of things you're watching. <laughs> I did produce in me a desire to go eat de- tomatoes and celery or whatever it is. <laughs> whatever Bob and whatever his name is. Um, <laughs> And I couldn't believe it because they were talking about being able to trust God for their needs and they went in and told the story of George Mueller. 
And from that, I want to, we began to talk last time about why someone like George Mueller, the word worked for him, and there's many others. I could tell you of Hudson Taylor. I could tell you of many other people, let alone, of course, all the people in the Bible. We began to look at what the difference was. We began to go back into Numbers 23, 19. We saw what God says about himself. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Has he not said it? And shall he not bring it to pass? We talked about the problem we have is because we lump God in with men. And man, you don't know whether they're going to tell you the truth or not. You don't know whether, even if they mean to tell you the truth, they may not have the ability to follow through on it. They may have had it when they told you, but by the time it's time to follow through, they may not have what they told you they were going to have. So they have the best of intentions, but they can't follow through on it. But God's not a man. So when it comes to deciding whether you can trust God's word, you can't, you've got to throw out all your experiences before your experiences with God. And then we saw that the reason what makes God different, one of the things that makes God's word different from man's word is that when you and I give our word, we're predicting whether or not it's going to come true. And so at the appointed time, you measure my word against what I did to determine whether I told you the truth. But we learn from John 17 that God's word is different. When God speaks something, he's not predicting whether it's going to happen. He's not even stating his intention whether it's going to happen because John 17, 17 says his word is truth. It doesn't say God tells the truth. You and I either tell the truth or we don't. But God's word automatically is truth. Let's turn it around the other way. Truth is whatever God says. That's why he can't lie. If he tries to lie, that lies now the truth. Really important thing to see. Because then we, what we discovered is the mistake we make is then we take a promise in this word and we do with that the same thing we do with your words or my words. We take a promise of God, we stand on it, and then we go and check out whether or not it came true. So we're measuring God's word against what happens just like you'd measure my word against what happens or I'd measure your word against what happens. And when we do that, we bring God down to being a man and then wonder why his word isn't working in our life. And what we do is we take God's word and we check it out against the circumstances. Well, I know God's word says, by his stripes I'm healed. So what I do is I go check the symptoms in my body to find out whether that's the truth or not. And when you do that, you unplug his word from him and you bring it down and treat his word just like anybody else's word and wonder why it's not working. So what we're going to look at tonight, we're going to pick up there and we made references to some of these things, but we're going to look at them a little bit more. We're going to look at His Word again. We're going to begin at that, and I want to show you a story or two from the New Testament about people that stood on it. And we saw an example last week of Peter standing, walked on the water. He didn't walk on water. He walked on the word come because he took Jesus at His Word until he stopped looking at come and began to look at the water to find out whether he could do it or not. Isn't that interesting? He was out there and still decided to find out whether this could happen. I don't know about you, but that encourages me. <laughs> Peter was very human. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. We made reference to this last week. We're talking about God's word, why it's different than your word or my word. Now, this chapter is talking about faith and what faith is and how it works. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the words, worlds were framed by the word of God. First of all, you can only understand that by faith, not by physics. They're out there, they just awarded the Nobel Prize to two physicists that discovered what happened after the Big Bang and why the Big Bang worked. But they haven't yet discovered what banged. I know what banged. In the beginning was God. 
And he said, that was the bang. <laughs> so all they're figuring out is what he said. So you have to understand that by faith, not by physics. Science cannot answer every question. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. This is what I want you to see. So that the things which are seen, the natural realm, the universe, were not made out of things that are visible. Now go to Hebrews 1 and we'll see what they were made out of. Verse 3, talking about Jesus, who being the brightness or the outshining of God, the Father's glory and the express image of the Father's person, upholding all things by the word of His power. So it was created by the word of God and God didn't, you know, have to huff and puff and work it up. I've got to create the universe. <sighs> he simply said, let there be. He released the power to create it. But it's still sustained. It's still sustained by the power of those words spoken whenever years ago. The power of God's word creates what God says. When you and I say something's going to happen, then we or someone else have to go make that happen. That's what it means in Hebrews 11.3 when, when it says that things were, were, that are seen were not made out of things that were visible. In other words, when God said, let there be then the angels didn't go to Lowe's or Home Depot or some other hardware store and find the resources and put them together and assemble the universe. That's what a contractor has to do. They don't create the wood. They don't create the metal. They go find someone else that's taken trees that God created and ore that God created and they manufacture it. Manufacturing doesn't mean you create. It means you rearrange the molecules and the structure. I mean, I remember somewhere about physics that one of the principles is, is energy is neither created nor destroyed. Is that what it is? Somebody that might know, about, know, know well enough? Well, God created it, but man can't create it, and man can't destroy it because God created it. So the point here is when we speak something... We're declaring what somebody's going to do to carry it out. When God speaks it, the words themselves create it. Nobody has to go do it. Those words make it happen. So God's words are creative. They have the creative power of God. And by the way, those words have the same creative power on your lips and my lips when we speak his words. But when you and I speak our words, we're predicting what's going to happen. It's an important difference because this word is filled with the creative power of God to make it come about what he says. Okay, let's go to Isaiah 55. I'm going to start in verse 12, but we're going to work backwards, actually. For you should go out with joy and be led forth with peace, and the mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. So that's talking of victory and of celebration and of joy. Well, let's go back to why. It starts in verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. We talked about this in Renewing the Mind. And my way, your ways are, your ways are, and my and nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. We sang tonight about how wonderful are your ways. God's ways aren't our ways. They're not human, natural ways. 
God's ways are different. Now, he's not saying here we can't learn his ways. In fact, we can. That's exactly what renewing the mind is all about. It's learning to think God's thoughts and learning to walk in his ways. Because here's what I wanted to get to. For as, high, as, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your ways. And now we're going to get, this is what we're going to talk about here. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and does not return there. So when, when we have a snowstorm, if you wait long enough, the snow doesn't go away because now it drifts back up into heaven. Wouldn't that be nice? You know, yeah, there's a nice beautiful snowfall one morning and you get up. So if, well, I'll wait a half an hour because you come out in half an hour and now God's called the snow back up into heaven again. It's going to go back up again and everything's all cleared off. That doesn't work that way, does it? The same way with the rain. It doesn't rain up. It doesn't rain down and then rain back up again. The other thing you're going to see in here is the rain and the snow come down for a purpose. The rain and the snow come down for a purpose. They come down for the purpose of watering the earth, the plants of the earth, of the, the grass and the trees and the flowers and the, and the, and the, and the crops that we're going to eat and the, so that we can eat and get food. The rain comes from heaven for that purpose. Keep that in mind. In the same way, and he tells you, that it may, may bring forth, that, that the water, we'll go back. So the rain comes down, the snow from heaven, and does not return there, but it waters the earth and makes it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So we all understand that. The rain comes out of heaven for a purpose, and it doesn't go back up again. It stays here and accomplishes its purpose. Verse 11. So, or in the same way, my word that, be, that goes forth from my mouth, God speaking here, it shall not return to me void or without accomplishing a purpose. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please or what I sent it to do, and it shall prosper in the things for which I sent it. So God declares about his own word that when he sends his word forth, it's not gonna, he's not going to take it back. He has sent it forth with a purpose that it will bring about what his word says. So when we're anxious where we're not going to be anxious about something, but instead we're going to make our request known to God. We're going to take what God says about that and we're going to make that request back to Him. When we do that, He's telling us, that's why I gave you that word. I gave you that word so that you could now use that word. Speak it over those circumstances. Speak it back to me and that will cause what I've sent it to do to come into being. That's all Jesus did. You understand, he didn't walk around on earth with some special power just because he was the Son of God. I mean, I grew up in church thinking that's why he did the miracles and how he did the miracles. The problem with that is, is the result of that is you make images of him in stained glass windows and you come into church and go, ah, oh, which is fine to worship him. But there's this huge separation. Well, he did that, but we can't do that. That was back in the first generation. That was just to form the church. That was until the Word of God came. But, but until the what came? The Word of God came. But, but that's not for us to do. He did that. He did those miracles just to attract attention. Isn't that interesting? Because he often told people when he did the miracles to not tell anybody. In fact, more often did he tell people not to tell anything than when he told people to go tell somebody. Now, either he's using reverse psychology with them. Don't go tell anybody, because I know if I do tell you that you're going to do that. But that's basically lying. And since he is the truth, he can't lie. So he must not have been using reverse psychology. That meant he intended for them not to go tell people. So that's kind of a strange way of using those miracles to advertise to prove who you are. By the way, you don't have to do it once. That would prove it. You wouldn't need to do it thousands upon thousands upon thousands of times. No, he did those miracles because he cared about people. He wanted to see them free. And he cares about people just as much today. He cares about you. He wants to see you free. He doesn't want you living in bondage. He doesn't want you bound up with sickness and disease. He doesn't want you having to take all kinds of medicines to get, to get through the day. He wants you to be free. 
And you may be free from sin, but if you're free from sin, then bound up with something else, you're not free. It's like if you have three tires with air on them and one flat. That doesn't do you any good, does it? Yeah, I got three good tires, but I got a flat. So you have a flat tire. You're not going anywhere. So why is it not working like that? If it has all that power, and Jesus used that power and demonstrated it, and other people have used that power, how come it's not working in our lives? And that's really the question for this evening. Well, let's go to James chapter 1. Because you do know there is an answer. That's why we're here tonight. Not just to ask the question. James chapter 1. Now, he's talking here about going through trials, which is what we were talking about last week. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, patience. So your faith will get tested. What's getting tested? Your faith. What's getting tested? Your faith. Peter says about it that the trying of your faith is more precious than gold. Wow, that's some statement. I mean, I don't know what the price of gold is today, but... You know, with the uncertainty and with our economy and things like that, people tend to investors tend to go back to gold because it has an, supposedly has an an intrinsic value. And he's saying that the trying of your faith. Now think about that. Not the building up of your faith, the testing of it is more precious than gold in God's eyes. Because gold's not eternal, but the development of your faith is eternal. And notice what it comes through. It comes through tests and trials. It comes through things happening to you that aren't good. We don't like those to happen to us. But I look back on my life, and I have grown much more through the difficult times than I have through the easy times. And in God's economy, that's not bad because if it's going to produce a greater depth of faith, a greater confidence in Him, that's more precious in His economy than are the things that we want to build our confidence and faith in. Knowing that it produces steadfastness. We talked briefly last week that in Romans 5 talking about this, it says, and then it goes on and says, and that patience produces proven character. And proven character, if you continue in it, produces hope a steadfast assurance. That it, you, and let that patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect. That means mature, complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Now we're talking about asking God for our needs, asking God in situations. Let him ask of God, we talked about this briefly last week, who gives to all, does all include you? Who gives to all liberally, generously, I think we mentioned Romans 8.32 last time. Paul writes, and he was convinced of these things, that if he spared not his own son, I got healed on that scripture. I just meditated on it. If he spared not his own son, if he didn't hold his own son's life back from me, but he gave him up for all of us, for you, me, all of us, how will he not also together with Him, freely give us all things. If the most precious, the most costly thing He had to Him, He was willing to give in place of your life when you weren't His child, how much more is He willing to freely give you everything? Why would He hold anything back if He didn't hold His Son back? God's not holding things back. He gives to all liberally and without reproaching you for asking. So there's no such thing as a stupid question with God. There's no such thing as asking something, oh, you've asked it too many times. Come on, ask. Ask. And it will be given him. Not God says, I'll consider it. I'll take it under advisement. I will, it will be given to him. Oh, but there's another verse. This is our part. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. 
with no doubting. For he who doubts is like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Double-minded means this moment I believe God's going to do it, and then I look at the circumstances, it doesn't look like it's happening, and now I believe God's not, I'm not sure God's going to do it. Why? Because I'm not taking God at his word for what God's word is and who he is. I'm considering him like a man. So in order for our request to be answered, to meet the condition, we have to ask, but we have to ask in faith. That means expecting the answer and then not doubt. Go with me to Mark chapter 11. Verse 12, the next day when they had come out of Bethany, he was hungry, Jesus. And seeing a fig tree from afar, having leaves, he went to see if perhaps it would have to find something on it to eat. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. In response, Jesus said, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. He didn't jump up and down, spit, wave his arms, yell and scream. He just said, let nobody eat like let there be light. Let no one eat fruit, eat fruit of you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem. Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers. And he said, okay, all that will go down now. Verse 20. The next morning as they passed by, they passed by this tree again. And they see the tree dried up from its roots. Now, whenever the Bible puts details in there, it's for a reason. I'm not much of a horticulturist, but I understand this pretty much, that if a tree dies today... You can't tell that tomorrow. It's going to take a while for the leaves to begin to shrivel up first and then eventually it will dry up. But this tree, the change in it is so dramatic that they knew the next day that it was dead from its roots. So it's a supernatural change has taken place in this tree. And Peter, remembering what he said yesterday, said to him, Rabbi, look, the tree which you've cursed, it's withered away. So it wasn't just that the leaves were dried up. The tree shriveled up, and I just kind of get this picture. It shriveled up and lay over in the dirt simply because he said, let no man eat fruit of you again. Now let's stop here a second because I've read all kinds of commentaries and explanations about what Jesus is doing here, that this is all symbolic about Israel, and it may be. That, well, because it wasn't the season, Jesus couldn't have really been expecting figs, and they get into all this. And let's just take it at his word. <laughs> I mean, that may be true, I don't know, but he, here's his answer. They've asked him a question. Master, you spoke to it, and it's shriveled up from its roots. I mean, it is dead, D-E-D, dead. I mean, it's gone. No hope of revival. It supernaturally died, shriveled up, buried. It's gone. Just because he said, let no man eat fruit of it again. And they asked him, Lord, the fig tree you cursed has withered away. He doesn't stop and say, my sons, this is, represents Israel. There are times when he says, when he says, when the centurion demonstrated his faith. He talks about Israel there and says, I've not seen such great faith in all of Israel. And then he goes on and says, the fathers of Abraham are going to come and they're going to sit. And he talks about how this, what this means about Israel. So he was not shy about saying, look, this is teaching you something about the state of Israel, where they are spiritually now. But he doesn't say that here. His answer is so simple. Verse 22, he answered and said to them, have faith in God. So that's what he's talking about. And that's what we're talking about. For assuredly, I say unto you, the word assuredly in the Greek is amen, amen. So, I mean, Jesus can't lie because he is the truth. So when the truth has to tell you, I'm telling you the truth, he's trying to emphasize something. For assuredly, and the reason he does this is this doesn't fit into our natural thinking. For assuredly, I say unto you, whoever says to this mountain, 
be removed and cast in the sea. And look at this. And does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he said will be done. He will have whatever he says. That is an incredible statement. And one of the most incredible words in there, and it's in there twice, well, is, is whoever and whatever. It was a time a year or so ago, I just took this verse and I just started speaking it over and over again. When I was in prayer, I'd just take time, maybe half an hour, and just speak it over and over again and do that for several days. And it's amazing what you'll begin to see in verses. Amazing what you'll begin to see in verses. That word, whoever, exploded in my understanding. Whoever. Whoever means I choose whether I get the benefit of this. Because he said, whoever. Yeah, but it can't mean whoever. Well, then what do you do with John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever. So if whoever means whoever in John 3.16, that whoever's got to mean whoever in Mark 11.23. But our mind balks at that because it can't mean whoever. Because that's an open door to ask whatever you want. But the key here, or what we're talking about, is what is you've got to say it with your mouth and not doubt in your heart. Now your head can doubt things, your heart believes, and your heart can doubt things, your head believes and shall not doubt in his heart, but believes that the things which he says will be done, and he will have whatever he says. Therefore, because of this, I say unto you, whatever things you ask, we're talking about making your request known unto God, whatever things you ask, when you pray, when you ask, there's something you have to do. Believe that you receive them and you shall have them. When are you supposed to believe that you've received it? When you ask, not when you have. Because when you believe you receive it, when you have, you're doing what you do with everybody else's word. I'm deciding whether I can believe it when I receive the answer, when I can see the answer. So I'm testing your word against the results. And the result, as a result of that, that word no longer has that same creative power. I've unplugged it from the power of God. It's like wondering why your hair dryer doesn't work. Because you, when you were moving somewhere, or you're, or you're ever do this, you're going along with your vacuum cleaner, and it just cuts out, and you wonder what happened, and you realize, oh, I pulled the cord out of the wall. And that's where the church is. We're out here trying to vacuum, unplugged from the power. We're out here saying words in our own life, praying and making requests, unplugged from the power. Paul says, I didn't come to you with words of man's wisdom. I came to you in the power and the demonstration, which means something we can see of the Spirit. So the key here is we literally, this goes back to verse 22, simply have faith in God, who He is. That's what we began this whole discussion. Who He is. He's not a man. So He can't lie. He's not a man, the Son of Man, So he can't change his mind. Has he not said it? And will, shall he not bring it to pass? And there are many others of those we could look at. Let's go to Luke chapter 5. Let's look at how we do that. Oh boy. Comes right after Mark, doesn't it? So it was at the verse one. So it was that the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, and he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. Saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Why were they washing the nets? They'd come in from fishing because they fished at night. 
not during the daytime. When he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to push it out a little bit from the land, and he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down a net for your catch. That's daytime now, for however long he'd been preaching. And Simon answered him and said, Master, we worked all night and caught nothing. Let's stop there a second. Now, let me ask you a question here. You've got Simon and you've got Jesus. What's Jesus' background, his training? He's a carpenter. He's a landlubber. He's a carpenter. What's Peter's background? He's a fisherman. And where do you catch fish? Out on the water. So you've got a carpenter telling a fisherman to go out and catch fish. All of Peter's training, all of Peter's experience in his training is you don't catch fish now. And you've got to imagine going through his brain as, wait a minute here, I'm the fisherman. And you're telling me, a carpenter, to go out there and catch fish? My training and my experience, what I've been raised in, my father was a fisherman. Most likely my grandfather was a fisherman. My brother's a fisherman. This village is fisher, fish. That's all we do. We, we, we eat, sleep, and drink, and smell fish. <laughs> and you're, you, you play around in wood chips and sawdust. Not only that, they've just been out there. It's not like saying, yeah, a week ago we were out there, but we know you don't catch them now. I just came in. The nets are still wet. You're telling me to go out and throw the nets down where I just came from. I know they're not out there because my eyes tell me they're not out there. My hands tell me they're not out there because I didn't feel the weight of them in the, in the, in the, in the net. And my nose tells me we're out there because I didn't smell them in the net when I brought them in. There are no fish out there. My, all my senses tell me, all my training, all my experience tells me there's no fish out there. And you, a carpenter, are telling me to go out there. Isn't that what we're talking about? God's Word says one thing. And all my experience, all my education, whether it was religious education or scientific education, all my training, all my, all my schooling tells me one thing. Not only that, if I look at my body and touch it, if I open my bank account and I look at my bank account, if I look at what's going on in my family, if I look at, at this bondage that I feel like in, if I look at these, they all tell me, saying something, what's that going to do? Tell me you've got a new specialist I can go see and they've got some new drug. Tell me that you found the counselor that can solve every problem. Tell me that. Tell me that you've found a diet that you went on. And by eating those foods and taking that thing, it caught, tell me you, you've experienced that uh, and it turned it around in your life. Tell, you tell me that and I'll go try that out. Isn't that what we do? We get on the internet and we try out everybody else's ideas out there. Why? Because they said they had success. They went out there and found fish. So we're going to go fish where they fished. It was funny. I used to go... Has, do my prayer time on certain days when I had my days off, go down to the beach where the town where we live. And in the fall, there was a bunch of, some of them were, church, were from church here. I'd go down there sometimes and there was nobody there, but then there's certain times in the September, if I remember correctly, it was lined up with fishermen. And I think I forgot what they were all after. And it was so neat because you'd see them all over here, you know, and the next thing you know, down there, somebody pulled a fish in. They all picked their boxes up and they're running over here. <laughs> to throw their fish and their hooks in there. Why are they doing that? They saw someone produce results. And Jesus is saying, I know what your experience is. I know you're a fisherman and I'm a carpenter. 
I know you've been out there and your eyes tell you there are no fish. Your nose tells you there's no fish. Your hands tell you there are no fish. I don't care what your senses tell me. I don't care whether there were any fish when you went there or not. That has nothing to do with it. Whether there are, were fish there when you were there or not, whether there are fish now or not doesn't matter. Because when I tell you, when I tell you there'll be fish there, the fact that I tell you will make the fish there. Now, Peter's got a choice. He can either trust in his experience and his family traditions and all he knows by growing up. He can trust in his recent experience and what his eyes tell him. He can trust in his reason. Or he can do something else. Let's read the rest of the verse. Peter answered and said to the master, I've toiled all night and caught nothing. And here's the key. Nevertheless. That word nevertheless is so powerful. In spite of all my background training, in spite of my family's traditions, in spite of all my, everything I've ever known growing up. In spite of the fact that you're a carpenter and I'm a fisherman. In spite of the fact that I was just there, I saw there were no fish. I know there are no fish there. In spite of all of that, look at that, at your word. It says, I will let down my net. You've got to understand what's involved in that. It's not I'm going to pick my rod up and cast it out there. To let down his net means he's got to get his crew back in the boat. He's got to convince them who just came back in. He's got to load the nets back in the boat. They've got to get the sail out. They've got to get all the things they've just cleaned up, dried off, get them back. It takes work. And all the while, while he's doing that, I'm sure there are thoughts going on in his mind. What are you doing? Are you a fool? Not only that, this isn't being done hidden away somewhere. Jesus just finished preaching to a crowd. They're all watching him. And he's got to choose what he's going to trust in. He's got to choose whether he's going to be influenced by what the crowd's laughing at, by what his background tells him, by what his recent experience tells him. He's got to choose, and he, it's an act of his will. He makes a choice here. And regardless of all those reasons telling me there's no way there's fish there, even if I know now there's no fish there, that has nothing to do with it because nevertheless, at your word, Because his word can create fish there. It's God's business to bring it about. It's our business to believe him. That's all he asks. And when they'd done this, they caught a great number of fish and the net was breaking and they had to signal their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boat so that it began to sink You have not because you ask not. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything that you'd be anxious about, make your requests known unto God. But you must not doubt. You must believe that he's going to do what he said he's going to do because he can't lie. Let's go quickly. We'll end with this story over to back into Mark, to Mark chapter 5. And as I was kind of sharing this follow-up in the office. Pastor Ray reminded me of this story that's in here, that I've, my, something I've preached out of this story, and it just fits in here so well. Verse 21, Now when Jesus had crossed to the other side again, a boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered, and a ruler of the synagogue named Jairus by name came. And when he saw him, Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him, verse 23, earnestly saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Now think about that. His daughter's about to die. Come and lay your hands on her 
that she may be healed and she will live. Not come and lay your hands on her and I hope that she might live. He's doing what Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty three and 24. Come, and if you lay your hands on her, she may be healed and she will live. And Jesus went with him. Imagine the comfort now. He's found his way to the master. This is what he's know. If I get a hold of him, there's a, he's going to come and heal my daughter. He found him. He's got his attention. And Jesus said, I'll come. And they're on their way. So imagine the hope he's beginning to get. Oh, this is now in his hands. He can do this, and he's willing to do this. Verse 25. Notice in verse 24, Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. I mean, a throng means they're pressing around him on all sides. They're pressing in with him. This is crowd, a mob in a way, going to see this, what he's going to do. A certain woman who had a flow of blood, verse 25, for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians, spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, came behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. Why? For she said, Mark 11, 23 and 24, if I only may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. And immediately the fountain of her blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. Look at verse 30. And Jesus immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out. So the progression here is, she says, if I just touch his garment, I know I'll be healed. She fights through. We're not even going to talk about what that must have taken. She touches his garment. She feels in her body that that flow of blood has dried up. He feels in his body power's gone out of him. Now watch this. Jesus immediately knowing himself that power had gone out of him turned around in the crowd and look what he says. Who touched my clothes? Let me ask you a question. If God only heals some people and not others, wouldn't he have to have found out who touched him before he released the power to find out if she was on the good list? Notice the, prog- the progression there. She said, if I touch his garments, I shall be whole. She acted on what she said, just like Peter got out of the boat. She acted on what she said. She touched his garment. She felt that healing come into her body. He also felt power go out of his, and he turns around to find out who received the healing. So it must be he doesn't now have to need to know who you are before he paid for the healing of your body. And his disciples said, what do you mean? Who touched you? A multitude thronged you. And you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who it was who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to him, daughter, your faith. What? Your faith. Not mine. Your faith has made you whole. Why? Because not only did she believe it, she stepped out and acted on it. On the word. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Oh, there's more to the story. While he was speaking, someone came to the ruler of the house and said, your daughter's dead. Now imagine what this must be like. He's gone along. He's hopeful. Now we have this commotion that stopped. Jesus is taking time with this woman for she's healed all the time. His mind's thinking, but my daughter's dying. But my daughter's dying. But my daughter's dying. But at least I've got Jesus. At least I know he's coming. At least I know he's coming. Now this whole scene's cleared away. They're starting down the road again. And one of his servants comes through and says, don't bother the master anymore. It's too late. She's dead. Can imagine what that must have sounded to him? Because it means it's over. To all of our experience... To everything we've done, he knew that means it's over. It's too late. I don't care who he is. It's too late. Look at verse 36. Look at how Jesus 
responds to this news. As soon as he heard the word that was spoken, he says to the ruler, he turns, I just get this image in my mind, that they're going around, he hears the news because the guy came and told Jairus, that Jesus turns Jairus around and grabs him by the robe. It doesn't say that, but that's God, that's what I see. And it says, look what he says to him. Do not fear. Only believe. Here's what he's saying. I don't care what they say about your daughter. I don't care what report it is. Whether she's alive or dead doesn't change what I've come to do because I said I will come and heal her. So the fact that she's dead has got nothing to do with what I said I'll do because with God, there's no such thing as too late. Not when you can speak the universe into existence. The ultimate no, the ultimate it's impossible is death, but not to God because he's not a man. And he said, I will heal her. Now Jairus has a choice to make and what Jesus is telling him here, I believe was with urgency. I can still do what I said, but I need you to do two things. One, do not fear. In other words, what Jesus' ability to do what he was going to do now required Jairus to not yield to fear. And the second thing he said was the positive side of it. Only believe. Only believe. Things must have been running through his mind. Oh my goodness, how am I going to tell the relatives? I got to make funeral, you know, what's this going to mean? Blah, 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 blah. And Jesus is saying, don't think about anything else, but don't fear. I need you to not fear. I need you to continue to believe regardless of that report because what does that report have to do with the word I gave you that I was coming to heal? And Jairus kept his mouth shut. The other interesting thing is Jesus now tells everybody to stay behind, including nine of his 12 apostles. He needed only he needed three of them with him that could agree with him and believe. The others he had to leave behind. The crowd he had to leave behind. When he gets there, of course, there's a tumult going on. There's just, you know, there's a mess. He had to kick them out. He had to get them out. He had to get the unbelief out. He had to get the unbelief out. He had to get the... You get a, a serious report, don't tell everybody. Don't put it out there on the internet. Don't post it on Facebook. You need to tell it with people that you know are going to fear not and only believe. And you don't need everybody coming up to you. How are you doing? How are you doing? Because you'll open your mouth and tell them how you're doing and that's not what you need to have coming out of your mouth. When you get a crisis, here's instructions from the Word of God. Fear not, only believe. And then God is able to do what His Word said. A lot of times what we think is faith is, well, I had this image. I won't go through the exercise. I've had Denny do it with me before. Proverbs 3, 4, and 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding. And I've had him come up here and I've leaned towards him, but not leaned on him. You know, you can lean towards something, we talked last week about sitting on the, Peter sitting on the edge of the boat with his feet in the water. That wasn't walking on the water. That was sitting on the edge of the boat. But his feet were wet. He was, he was out of the boat, but he wasn't all the way out. He wasn't resting his trust. He wasn't resting the future. He had a backup plan sitting on the edge of the boat. And when you're trying to trust, when you're trusting God's word with a backup plan, you're still sitting on the edge of the boat. In some cases, 
it'll work. But there are serious cases where it won't work. We see in what Jesus did, it required a different way to handle it when the challenge became greater because it was harder to believe he could raise the dead than it was going to be to believe for people around him that he was going to be able to raise her up from being very sick. God doesn't want you in bondage. God doesn't want you staying up at night in fear and worrying and what's going to happen, how you're going to pay the bills, what am I going to do about this. God doesn't want you worrying all about these things. You're his child. He loves you. He paid. He paid. He paid for you. He paid for your deliverance. He paid for your freedom. He's done everything he can from his side. He's held back his own son, didn't hold it back his own son. How will he not also together freely give us all things? He's given it to us, but it's in his word. We need to come to him, make our request known to him, take his word and believe this word. And when you do, you release the power of God that created the universe into that circumstance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word that you've given to us. That not only does your word instruct us and teach us, not only does your word challenge us and correct us, but it is the power of God unto salvation. All that's included in salvation, not just our being delivered from sin, but all that the word salvation encompasses, complete wholeness in our lives. Father, open the eyes of our understanding to truly see the power that is in your word when we'll take you at your word. And as Paul prayed for the churches at Ephesus and Corinth and for others, we ask you to increase us in our knowledge and understanding of who you really are. And not only just of what you can do, what you have done for us, and what you want to do for us. For there's so much at stake right now, Father, as we learn to take this word and apply it in our lives. We thank you for the grace to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.